Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts 19, verses 10 to 20, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Thoroughly Christian. You don't have to read the Bible very long before it becomes obvious that one of the major problems in the Old Testament was the problem with idolatry. You know, there's a line in Genesis 31 that strikes me on the one hand as sad, on the other hand, it's hilarious. Genesis 31 verse 19 says, Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Not much of a god, do you think, if you can run into the house and put him under your coat and run away with him? I can almost imagine the God. Oh, no, here comes someone to steal me, and I'm going to be held hostage. I mean, there's not much power there, is there? These gods can't protect even themselves. I mean, why would you steal them? Are they supposed to protect you? But Rachel was convinced there was value there. And then we come to Genesis 35, verse 2. Jacob is giving a charge to his wives and his children. It says, so Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Stop this, he says. Get rid of them, he says. And of course, their descendants don't. They believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they also believe in the gods of the nations around them. In their minds, you want to cover all your bases. You want to get as much spiritual protection from all the gods that you can get. And so God gives the Ten Commandments. And what's the first one? you shall have no other gods. And then the second, you shall not make yourself a carved image. And yet, for generation after generation, the belief that the God of Israel is God, and yet the belief that the other gods might also provide protection, or at the very least, that you certainly don't want to offend them, I mean, that made the problem of syncretism, of combining a variety of beliefs and somehow putting them all together. I mean, that idea was attractive. It was always taking root in Israel. But it's not just an Old Testament problem. It it carries on today in different ways, but the principle is always the same. Be Christian, but also engage in the forms of sexual expression that are popular today. I mean, be a Christian, but also hold to the philosophies and the ideologies that describe the world as a random place filled with chaotic events in which you need good luck or good karma to make sure that nothing bad happens to you. Be a Christian but also practice forms of spirituality that come from alternative religious sources and spiritualities. I mean, after all, how can it hurt to engage in a number of forms of spirituality? Be a Christian, but also adopt philosophies that discount the image of God in everyone or that discount the reality and prevalence of sin and of a need for a savior. You see, what's wrong with a bit of syncretism? That's what people ask, and I hope you see it. The Old Testament problem of idolatry, after thousands of years have passed, that problem has not passed away. It's been passed on. It's with us this day. Indeed, it's deeply rooted in the contemporary church, whether as it is in some parts of the world where pagan practices are incorporated into worship or whether in other parts of the world where you find the human potential movement is worshiped as much as God. Idolatry is still among us, and the greatest challenge we've always faced is the challenge of becoming thoroughly Christian. Now, we're going to come back to that because the problem of idolatry and what it means to be thoroughly Christian, that's key to understand today's passage. So let's start. Acts 19, verse 9b to 10. 
he, that is Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That little paragraph is key to our story. Paul had spent three months in the Jewish synagogue, and now, for two years, he's going to be lecturing in the hall of Tyrannus. And every day, from morning to afternoon, and according to our passage, he took the disciples with him. And by that, Luke means that he took those who had come to genuine faith in Christ, and he's teaching them as well, probably from the morning until well into the afternoon. He's instructing them in the faith. What we have here is the beginnings of a Christian seminary. In fact, I would argue what Luke is telling us, that in consequence of what Paul did in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, that the word of the Lord spread through Asia, that means that Paul must have been training up ministers and evangelists and church planters who were able to train others in the faith. He was multiplying himself. It's likely that Epaphras, who took the gospel to Colossae, was there in Tyrannus. The same might have also been true of Tychicus. He, like Epaphras, was from Asia. Probably also men like Trophimus, Archippus, others that you read about. I think it's quite likely that Paul established this place in Ephesus as a training seminary for pastors. I'd argue that the 12 disciples of John the Baptist, that Paul baptized into the name of Jesus, they also stayed and were trained there. And it is this that for the next several decades of the Christian faith made it the center of Christian evangelism and training. Timothy spent a great deal of time in Ephesus. He gave leadership. You know, later the apostle John would be there and he would give leadership. And John would also write the gospel of John from the city of Ephesus. This city, Ephesus, became the seminary for global Christianity, at least for a few decades. This place was training ground to teach how to be thoroughly Christian. And one more item. During this time in the city, Paul got word back from what was happening to other churches in other cities. It was in Ephesus that he heard from Chloe's people. Problems had developed in Corinth. And so there Paul wrote the first letter of the Corinthians. So having that picture in mind, let's move on. Acts 19, 11 to 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. See, Ephesus was not only the place where Paul invested in training Christian leaders, it was also the place where he ministered to people. Now, to be clear, you know, I don't believe the gift of healing has ceased. But it does seem to me that the ability to do miracles was in superabundance among the original apostles. Hebrews 2, 3b-4. This gospel of our great salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that was the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That is, among All of God's people, there have always been miracles, but the apostles had a special ability that no one else had. Remember that in the case of Peter. Luke tells us in Acts 5.15 that people brought out the sick on mats so that Peter's shadow might fall on them, and in consequence, they were healed. I can tell you with certainty that phenomenon of a shadow falling on people and being healed, that hasn't reoccurred. There was a superabundance among the apostles only. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul would call that the sign of an apostle. 
And so in this case, people would take handkerchiefs and aprons from Paul, and those handkerchiefs were used to wipe away his perspiration, his sweat. The aprons were to protect his clothing from getting too dirty, and so the aprons would have been covered with dirt. It was John Calvin who thought that God chose those worthless items so that, you know, the people who use them wouldn't fall into superstition and idolatry. At any rate, Luke never gives us even a hint that people idolized those pieces of clothing and made them into sacred relics. Rather, there seems to have been an understanding that as an apostle, God had chosen this man to teach the kingdom of Jesus and also demonstrate the healing ministry of Jesus. So there's great joy in the city. They not only heard God's word being proclaimed, and they'd heard it taught accurately, and that ministers were being trained in the city. They also saw that God was concerned for the least of these, for the sick, those in need of mercy, as well as those possessed by demons. I'd like to add a little footnote on this discussion. In the ongoing work of the church, when someone is sick, they are to call for the elders of the church. They are to come and anoint them for healing. And I've been a part of that ministry as a pastor for many years. I've seen some rather profound miracles. None the least of them was a man who was healed of leukemia instantly, another who was healed of blindness instantly. Now, having said that, none of what I saw even comes close to what was done by the apostles. Very good. Let's keep reading. Here's where the trouble begins. Acts 19, 13, and 14. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Ah, several things. Do you remember what Jesus said about this practice? He was speaking to the religious leaders, and he said to them in Matthew 12, verse 27, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? So it turns out that the Pharisees had students who were casting out demons. Now, their results were spotty and not that great. In contrast, Paul was able to cast out every single demon. And so it turns out that these seven sons of Sceva, the exorcists, they're saying, we must be doing something wrong. We live in a fallen world. We're called to live God-honoring, Bible-based lives, but society would seem opposed. How are we to illuminate and influence a culture that rejects the truths of Scripture? Well, Back to the Bible Canada has a new resource to help us do just that. 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change. It's a new booklet that presents 10 impactful ways we can affect and influence the world around us. Each chapter also contains probing questions to reflect upon and suggestions as to how each of us might integrate these essentials into our daily lives and relationships. Derived from Dr. John Neufeld's audio series and alternative lifestyle, this is a resource designed to engage the reader to make a difference. Request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. This fellow named Sceva. You know, Luke says he was a Jewish high priest, and that title is very interesting because whoever Sceva was, he was certainly not a high priest in Jerusalem. He had never served in the temple. 
he would have had no ruling position. It's very likely that he called himself a high priest, or perhaps even his followers called him a high priest. You know, perhaps people feel he was, you know, filled with spiritual power, and and he got that name for himself because of his spiritual power. Now, the sons of Sceva. I don't think they were his biological sons. I mean, most likely, these were his disciples. These were people who believed in Sceva. They'd been trained by him. Part of their training was that they were exorcists and given, as we'll see in a moment, Ephesus is filled with occultic and magical practices. Demon possession would have been common in that city. So these seven sons of Sceva had a burgeoning business model. That is, they did until Paul showed up and showed them to be the scams they were. Now, just pause here for a moment. There are people today who gain a title that's meant to confuse, and I'm particularly concerned about those who today call themselves apostles, when clearly they're not. They've not been personally trained by Jesus, and they certainly don't have the superabundance of miracles that is described of an apostle. So it's the same way with Sceva. He calls himself a high priest. Now, the seven sons of Sceva, they see genuine power of Jesus through Paul, and they they come to a conclusion. They think they're lacking something in their exorcism bag of tricks. I mean, up to now, they've been using incantations, and we know that from history, that they were Jewish teachers who combined Judaism with incantations and magical practices that were borrowed from pagan sources. And furthermore, They always were on the hunt for more incantations, for something new. And Paul, they said, uses a particular incantation. He uses a name we've never heard before. And so instead of abandoning that huckster by the name of Sceva and joining Paul in the seminary at the Hall of Tyrannus and learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that is, becoming thoroughly Christian, instead of doing that, these guys conclude all we lack is simply, you know, the use of a new incantation the name of Jesus. And it's clear they don't know who Jesus is. And that becomes painfully clear when they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So let's keep reading. Acts 19, 15 to 17. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You know, the evil spirit whom these seven men were trying to exercise spoke. Well, that's what we find in the Bible, especially, you know, in the ministry of Jesus. You might remember that when Jesus cast out the legion of demons from that one man, they spoke. Matthew 8, 29, they said, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? That is, before the final judgment. So the demons, they want to know what's going on. Why are you throwing us out now before the final judgment? And what's going on? They, they don't understand. But here in the case of these seven men, I mean, they, they answer. They say, you know, Jesus, we know. There's no doubt. These particular demons, I mean, they might never have encountered Jesus in Israel. But the word of the might of Jesus and how Jesus had defeated their master, Satan, and how he was rescuing men and women from the grasp of the demonic, that had been told in the demonic host. Yeah, yeah, they knew Jesus all right. And then they add, and we recognize Paul. So they use a different word here for Paul. I mean, they'd recently become aware of who he is. 
Now, we don't know when that happened. I mean, perhaps it only happened when Paul arrived in Ephesus. I mean, clearly, this man, Paul, he was Jesus' man, and he was under the direct authority of Jesus. And so for that reason, they become very aware of Paul. But the demons also instantly detect that these seven sons of Sceva, they don't come in the authority of Jesus. And so having been defeated when Paul arrived in Ephesus, I mean, the demons are in wrath. You might remember, again, the demon-possessed men, you know, in Matthew chapter 8. They're so fierce, says Matthew, no one can pass that way. And Mark, when he tells the story, adds, you know, one was able to wrench chains apart with his bare hands. You know, this strength, the strength of the demon-possessed man, is found here in Acts 19. He faces the seven disciples, and he faces them with anger, and in wrath, he turns on them. The Greek seems to indicate that he overpowered the first one, then the other, and so forth. That is, he gave the first one a severe beating while the others might have been trying to stop him. But he was unstoppable, and when he had finished with the first, he turned on the next until he had beaten all seven of them. Their clothes are stripped and they're left bleeding, and in consequence, there's humiliation among these men. And also in consequence, the stark contrast between those seven and Paul (laughs) that becomes widely known. And then in consequence, it's not that people honor Paul. It becomes apparent. The difference is Jesus. In Jesus, people are healed. In Jesus, demons are cast out. In Jesus, mercy is offered. In Jesus, forgiveness of sins is found. People want to hear about the message of Jesus. And everyone's talking. Now, of course, the demon that had beat the stuffing out of those seven men, they hadn't imagined that that would be the results of what they did. I'm reminded here again of what Martin Luther once said. He said, Satan is none other than the unwilling servant of God. So as Satan and his demons rage against Christ, they unwittingly fall into the plans of God. But our story, although you know, might have thought it would end here, it doesn't. If something else describes what happens next. So let's read Acts 19, 70 to 20. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So let's start with the first statement, verse 17. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and that means the name of Jesus was held in high honor in Ephesus. That was true in the Jewish community. It's also true in the Greek community. And we have to imagine that opportunities for evangelism increased greatly. But now for the first time, we hear something happen among the believers in Ephesus. Suddenly, all of them looked up and began to understand something that they have ignored up to this point in time. Look again at verse 18. Many of those who were believers began to confess their sins. They started to open up a secret that was there in their lives, something that they had never abandoned even after they had confessed faith in Christ. It has to do with the culture of the city. It has to do with the practice of magic. And here I don't mean sleight of hand or, you know, card tricks or, you know, making things, you know, appear and disappear on stage, all, you know, through clever misdirection techniques. I mean, that's what we think of as magic today. Rather, in Ephesus, it had to do with practicing divination, 
with interpreting signs and omens, with divining the internal organs of birds, with casting charms, with holding seances, with consulting the dead, with performing black magic, with using incantations to curse one's enemies and to bring one good luck. See, all those practices, they're forbidden in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. But Christians who had recently come to Christ in Ephesus had been reluctant to repent of those practices. I mean, just like the idolaters in ancient Israel, they wanted Jesus, but they also wanted the idols. They had become Christian, but they didn't want to be thoroughly Christian. It's like so many today. They want Jesus, but they also want the idols of our culture and the idols of our contemporary sexual indoctrination or the idols of some kind of contemporary thinking. They want to say, give me Christ, but don't make me thoroughly Christian. And there came a time in the life of the Christians in Ephesus where they came to realize that that kind of a thinking was an offense to God. It's a denial of the supremacy of Christ in all things. And so they hauled out their magic books and they said, enough of that, and they burned them. And the worth of all of that, well, let's just simply say, it was a lot of money. It was a mountain of money. It was more money than most of them would have ever seen in their lifetime. And they burned it all. And the result was that the word of the Lord went out as never before. Hey, the same things happen today when we repent of our idols. When we do, the word of the Lord goes forth like never before. Thanks for your message, John. John, can I ask you, what would be your word of warning to those who feel something needs to be added to God's word in order to more effectively attract people to the church? Yeah, I want to make a distinction between doing everything with excellence and with the idea that uh, somehow that the scripture is not enough or the preaching of the word is not enough to save those who would believe. So let's make a distinction. I mean, doing things in a shoddy fashion is never acceptable. We need to strive for excellence in all that we do. But let's also be very clear that the excellence must be the proclamation of the word of God and training people to humble themselves, bow before God and worship him. Let's not add to that. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations, it's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, its broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. This year, we're excited to share that Truth and Life will have a unique discipleship focus. Each issue will highlight a different marker of discipleship. We trust that each of the elements of discipleship explored this year will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. 
and thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine to fulfill its mission of providing trustworthy Bible teaching. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.